Wan Nataprila with his Shura's Suta, the Drocht of March hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer, a podcast series that offers the beginner an insight into the life and times of English writer Geoffrey Chaucer and why his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales, still has relevance today. My name is Karen Carey, and I'll be chatting with Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language here at the University of Oxford. In this episode, we talked to Professor Marion about the language that Chaucer used. So, Marion, perhaps you can kick us off with a, a few words in the language as Chaucer wrote it. Yes, of course. I'll I'll recite the first few lines of the Canterbury Tales. Mm. One that Aprila, with his Shura's suitor, the Drocht of March, hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Inspired hath in every halt and heat the tender crops, and the young son hath in the ram his half coarse iran. And smile of ours, making melody that slave and all the nicked with open yea, so pricketh hem nature and her courages than long and folk to goon on pilgrimages. That's lovely. So obviously that could be quite challenging for yeah. modern readers to understand. Um, so what are the key linguistic differences between Middle English and contemporary English that students should be aware of when approaching Chaucer's works? So I think probably what people find most difficult is that there has been vocabulary change. So that there are some words which they're just not familiar anymore. Um, I think that some of the things that seem... Dif- so that is something that's genuinely difficult and you have to look up those words and learn them. I think sometimes there are things which seem difficult and then quite soon aren't, for example. So what I just read, what I just recited, that first line, um, when, when that's April, that's just when April. And once you, you know, once you're looking on the page and hearing it with his Shura's suitor, that's just showers sweet, sweet showers. Those words haven't changed. The spelling has changed and the um, pronunciation might have changed, but you quite quickly can key into that. So it's an initial challenge, but it's not it's not the same kind of challenge, I think, as um, as, as having to you know, actually learn different words. You know, there have been some changes in things like word order as well, you know, of course, those kinds of things. And that's particularly the case when you're reading poetry rather than prose. Um, I mean, of course, there are other changes like we have expanded our vocabulary a great deal, but in a way that doesn't, if the words aren't there, that doesn't doesn't really matter so much. So I think that there are challenges, but usually, I mean, Chaucer's Middle English is not as different from our modern English as other kinds of Middle English. So if you look to Chaucer, as as we've talked about, was writing in the last quarter of the 14th century, you know, mainly. And at the same time, so for example, the poet of Gawain and the Green Knight was writing at the same time. Now he was writing in a northwestern dialect. It's much harder for people to understand today because that's not the dialect that developed into standard English. Whereas Chaucer was writing in the East Midland dialect, which was the London dialect, that developed into our standard English today. So it is much more familiar to us than texts that were written in in Northern dialects, for example. And you mentioned before that 
um, he was one of the first writers to write in Iambic pentameter. The first. The first in English. Yeah. Well, obviously, the Italians were doing it. Well, they were doing something different. Okay. So, no, he invented the Iambic pentameter. So, he got it essentially from... So, in Italy... They were writing in an 11-syllable line with two particular stresses. So it wasn't a da-dum, da-dum. It wasn't the same unstressed stress. So he got he took that longer line, which had a stress pattern, and he changed it into an English line, which was usually 10, though sometimes 11 syllables, but with five stresses. So the da-dum, da-dum. So if we think of than long and fuk to goon on pill grimage, that's the kind of line I'm talking about. So he had so English has those kinds of stresses, which is very different from from French poetry as well. The fact that we do have we are an accentual syllabic language where we have accents and stresses as well as our our syllables. So that was a really new thing, was completely new in English poetry. And again, people often think of that as something that happened later. Once Chaucer had begun to develop it, he almost always used it. He still varied his form at different at different times, but usually he used that longer line once he developed it, whereas his earlier poetry tends to be in eight-syllable lines. Once he developed this ten-syllable, the decasyllabic line with five stresses, he tended to use it. It's And then lots of other poets took it on. It is a slightly rougher form when Chaucer first invents it. So it's new and he takes more liberties with it. So while often a 16th century poet will very strictly stay with those... Um, five stresses and the pattern. Chaucer, there's often an extra unstressed syllable at the end. Sometimes he'll invert the stresses. He'll do different things with it. But it's still very recognisably the iambic pentameter. And lots of other people took it up after him. It's a really important intervention into what English poetry could do. And as well as inventing that poetic line, he also invents important poetic forms. So, for example, something called rhyme royal which he uses in Troilus and Crusade, and he uses in several Canterbury tales. And it's a, a, a form where you have um, stanzas, so verses, each verse is seven lines, and the rhyme form is A, B, A, B, B, C, C. Um, so it's a form that we alternate, we alternate, then we have a couplet at the end. And again, lots of other poets took that up after Chaucer. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare used to do everything in a bit pentameter as well, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, once you get into the early modern period and really right through to the 19th century, almost all poets in English are using iambic pentameter. So it's an enormously influential form. And indeed, Shakespeare was very influenced by Chaucer in all kinds of ways. People often focus more on classical influences on Shakespeare. But Shakespeare and all early modern writers were steeped in Chaucer. There were many, many, many editions of Chaucer throughout the 16th century. Everyone educated is reading Chaucer. And in all of Shakespeare's plays, you can find either direct references or influences or little verbal echoes of Chaucer. So it's most obvious in plays such as A Midsummer's Night's Dream, Two Noble Kinsmen, Troilus and Cressida. But it's there in in all the plays in, in some way or another. Yeah, yeah. So how would you suggest a beginner, um, how would they sort of navigate the sort of rhythmic and phonetic aspects? Because it's quite phonetic, like the night is nicked, isn't it? So yeah. How, how, how do you think um, they could navigate that to get some sort of better understanding? So I think it depends what people want, because I think if you want to understand the text, you don't have to know everything about how it's pronounced. It doesn't matter if you know that it's nicked or night, you know, if you're if you're trying to understand what's going on in the text. Um, so I do think, I think to a certain extent, not everyone has to be a purist about Middle English. If you want to read it, if you're reading it for fun on your own, you want to read it in modern translation, 
do that. I really hope you'll then go on to to read the, the Middle English because, of course, you can't get the beauty of the poetry in translation. But I also think it's much, much better to read it in some version than in no version, right? And there are so many interesting translations, adaptations. But of course, if you're if you are a student and you're studying with a, a lecturer or a teacher, they're going to help you in all kinds of ways. And you're likely to have a good glossed text and to have notes and to be able to, to, to access it that way. If you're on your own, but you want to be studying the Middle English, I would say you go read it out loud, you know, go to the internet and just find examples of people reading bits of it out, out loud. You know, get your get your ear in, you know, listen to an audio Canterbury Tales, maybe reading along with the text while also listening to it. Um, if you work at it like that, it will come quickly. I mean, Chaucer's Middle English, as I've said, I think it's a fine balance. You know, on the one hand, I don't want to pretend it's not, there's not a barrier. There is a barrier. Our language has changed over 600 years. Of course it has. But I also think it's important not to be too frightened of that. This is the the dialect, as I say, it did develop into our modern English. There's a lot of things that are familiar. And once you do just persevere for a short time, you're, it's quite satisfying because quite quickly, I think students do find that they can understand much more of it and they can go on, you know, checking glosses and so on. Or, you know, we all still forget certain words and so on. That's fine. So are there any sort of resources that you can recommend that, that might be available to people on the Internet or in a book of some form? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that um, if you go to say, I mean, say, I know Harvard has good Chaucer pages. If you go to the Bodleian Library, we've collected a a set of Chaucer resources there, which we use alongside Chaucer study days that we run for um, 16 and 17 year old local um, school students. But we've put a set of of resources on there that people can click on and can use. there are also, of course, good translations, for example, by David Wright. Um, there's an older one by Neville Coghill, which a lot of people still still like. Um, if you go, I mean, I think there are there are all kinds of audio resources that you can find also just by going on to things like YouTube and hearing people reading out bits of Middle English and chores. I think you know, there's a lot of good things out there like that, too. So can you talk a little bit about how Chaucer's own development of English sort of came about? Yes, absolutely. So... On the one hand, there is an unbroken tradition of poetry in English, you know, going back to about the 7th century. You know, there's always been tons of extraordinary English verse. On the other hand, it was nonetheless a bit surprising to write so much in English in Chaucer's day, because in Chaucer's time, English was the the poor relation language in England. So Latin and French were the important languages. People at court were reading poetry in French. When you look at their wills, they're leaving books in French. The language of courts, of parliament, legal records, you know, French and Latin are the languages that are used for those. Now, English was emerging more and more as a prestigious poetic language. But what, say, Chaucer's contemporary John Gower did would be much more um, kind of normal than what Chaucer did. So what he did was he wrote lots of poems, but including three long poems, one in French, one in Latin, one in English. As far as we know, Chaucer only wrote in English. So that was unusual because certainly in his early years, when he was at court, he was hearing poems in French much more. When he wrote the Book of the Duchess, that was that was certainly by no means the first English poem, but it was the first time someone had written something called the Dita Moreau in English. So this particular kind of love vision 
poem, um, this kind of mourning poem about stylized forms of love. It was a, a poem that people were used to hearing, were used to hearing in French, very surprising for them to hear it in English. So he was pioneering in how much he used English. But at his time, there was a kind of groundswell that he was a part of. So as well as Chaucer and Gower, you have Langland, you have the Gawain poet who wrote Sir Gawain Green Knight, who wrote Pearl. You also have at this time increasingly more English being used in scientific texts, in medical texts, in a whole range of different things. You start to get English being used in Parliament and so on towards the end of the 14th century. And this explodes much more in the 15th century. So while it was surprising how much he used English, he wasn't unique in using that. Whereas in later centuries, some people you talked about him as if he were the first person to have thought of writing in English and said that he coined all kinds of words, which he didn't coin. It's just that people looked at his text. They didn't look at, at others. On the other hand, I mean, I do I do like to use the example that Chaucer was so newfangled that he invented the word newfangled. You know, our first use of the word newfangled is in Chaucer's poetry. And, you know, that, that's that's obviously it's a neat example. But it is typical of him because he was an innovator and he was original in all kinds of ways. But I also think it's crucial to see what he was doing to English in the context of what was happening across Europe. Now, in lots of these podcasts, I've been talking about the importance of Italy. And again, that comes up here because Chaucer was so strongly influenced by the Italian poets and what they were doing for the Tuscan dialect. So Dante, writing a couple of generations before Chaucer, had really elevated Tuscan and said, well, we can use the vernacular to write extraordinary poetry, you know, to write the Divine Comedy. And Chaucer was so profoundly influenced by Dante and by Boccaccio, who were essentially saying, well, we don't have to use Latin. We don't have to use the kind of international vernacular of French, you know, which was spoken across Europe. We don't have to use those. We can use our local language. We can make those languages good enough for the greatest poetry. So Chaucer was in a, in a way doing something quite international when he was using his national vernacular. Now, of course, it's a vote of confidence in English, but it's also saying I can be like the Italians. This is something international that I can do. And in choosing to write in English, you change your audience. Because if he had written, if he had written in Latin, it would have been much easier for your other European poets to read his poetry. And you know, some of them did. You know, we know that some French poets were reading him. But if you write in English, it makes it easier for a greater range of, of social classes within your own country to read you. It makes it more likely that women are going to be able to read and understand you as well as men. So it is something that opens up readership within your more immediate environment. And I think that is an important part of, of using English. Um, and certainly it's it's given him, of course, a much greater longevity than it would have had he written in French or Latin. And he then, in the 15th century, you know, lots of people start talking about him as the person who was the, the first kind of finder of English, who wrote, who, who invented all kinds of aspects of English. But partly that's a bit of a myth that is part of the, the invention of him as the father of English literature kind of idea, which really develops after his death. So I think that, you know, I would be a bit, I would hedge a bit and say, well, he was, of course, a great innovator. He did a huge amount for English, but he's part of a movement rather than the only person doing it. Okay. Just out of interest, are there any sort of phrases or words that we you said um, newfangled? Is there are there any other sort of phrases like that that we use today that 
you know that that came from Chaucer? Yeah, there are. I mean, there's there's a whole lot that you can find if you look them up, and it's always difficult to remember them when you're trying to think off the top of your head. But something like "Love is blind" is a very famous one, for example. And there's lots of different proverbs that you find in Chaucer. I mean, he is he is still peppered throughout our language in all kinds of ways. Thank you very much. You have been listening to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer. You can listen to other episodes in this series on the University of Oxford's podcast site or on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to learn more about Professor Marion Turner's work on Chaucer, then please follow the link in the description. Thank you for listening. Thank you.